Hey, this is Lee Snow. I'm the preacher of Orange Springs Road Church of Christ, and this is our podcast. I wanted to thank you for downloading today. I hope it inspires you. I hope it builds your faith. I hope it gives you a perspective to see what God wants to do in your life. And I hope it challenges you to a faithful tomorrow. All right, good morning. Go ahead and open up to Galatians chapter 1. Galatians chapter 1. We're going to continue our study uh, through the book of Galatians that we started last week. We're going to go all the way through uh, the end of the year. And, but today we are going to finish with chapter 1. And in the next few weeks, after polishing the pulpit, and when things settle down a little bit, we'll pick back up in chapter 2. But, Galatians chapter 1. Now, very quickly, let's go over what we already talked about. And then we'll move on to our study uh, this morning. Galatians 1 starts in a way that no other Pauline book starts. And what I mean by that is Paul dives right into the subject because the, the subject is so important that Paul does not have time to wait around and, and go through the pleasantries that he usually does and make sure that everyone is calm and everything else. It's, this is too important. What he's going to talk about in Galatians is way too important to try to, to appease everyone. Because the fact of the matter is, is that what he's going to say is going to upset a large portion of the people that will eventually read the book of Galatians. Maybe not a majority of the people that will read the book of Galatians once it gets to the region of Galatia. You know that the book is not written to an individual church. It's actually written to a group of churches in an area because in that area there is this, there is this teaching, there is this mindset that is spreading that is so dangerous that it's going to destroy the faith of every Christian in that area if something doesn't stop it. Now, in Galatians, he's going to deal with a specific symptom of the problem, and that is circumcision. But I'm going to argue that that the problem itself is not circumcision as much as it is the mindset that is leading these people to teach these Christians that they have to be circumcised if they love Jesus. And the mindset is what is going to cause damage. And I would argue that the mindset that those people in Galatia, the Judaizers in Galatia, uh, had during this time is not only still prevalent today, But I'm going to say that it is so prevalent that it is the reason why 2,000 years after the establishment of the church and the New Testament's writing and the apostles passing from this life, it is the reason why we have 38,000 different religious groups claiming the name of Jesus today. It is the reason why we have religions like Mormonism and Jehovah's Witness and even Islam, which we talked about last week, the fact that these people in Galatia and really over the entire church, but this mindset caused these Judaizers, these people that were teaching that you have to obey circumcision in order to love Jesus, caused them to leave their communities, go out into the desert, And about 600 years later, after that that theology had morphed and changed and they they had taken in other religions, because once your wall is broken down and you're willing to accept things outside of Jesus Christ, well then you're willing to accept things outside of the religion of Christianity, and that's what exactly happened. And so 600 years later, a guy comes along, an illiterate man, by the way, named Muhammad, who writes down the religion that his people had been following, and come to find out the religion that his people had been following was this Judaizing religion. And the the mindset that led them to do this, the mindset that led 
2,000 years later for us to have all of these religious groups that claim the name of Jesus. The mindset that led for people to believe that Christianity wasn't enough. And so we needed an angel to come and to give us some message that would then become Mormonism or Jehovah's Witness doctrine. That mindset is really what he's dealing with in Galatians chapter 1. Now, in chapter 2, and and really in chapter 3, and you might even argue the rest of the book, but anyways, in chapter 1, he's dealing with the mindset. The rest of the book, he starts dealing with the specifics of circumcision. But if you're going to take care of the symptom and leave the problem still broken, it will not help. This past week, in fact, well, last weekend, um, I decided I was going to revert back to my old ways. I used to love wrenching on cars and working on cars, and, and Rebecca's car started acting up, and so I said, you know what? I'm going to fix it. I'm not going to take it to the shop. I'm going to fix it. So I took her car apart Friday night, last Friday night, not this past one, but a week ago. Um, I took her car apart. I, 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 I took off the intake manifold and the throttle body and the intake and I took all the wires apart and I, I replaced the spark plugs and I replaced one of the coils because it was blown and, and I did all this work and then Saturday morning I woke up early so that everyone could still function that day and I, um, put the car back together. So you got about four hours on Friday night and about three hours on Saturday morning fixing Rebecca's car. Well, then she takes her car and she's going to run errands because the beauty of a family with three children and one on the way is that when you have two vehicles, one person can stay with the kids or one person can go do this errand when the next person can go do this errand. And so I was taking care of something and she decided she was going to go run an errand. So she started down that process and she got to Manchester Expressway and Veterans Parkway right there near Del Taco, uh, down the hill from Del Taco. And she called me in a panic. Husbands, have you ever had that instance where your wife calls you terrified? She calls me and says, my car is not cranking. I am in the middle of the intersection at Manchester and Veterans Parkway. What do I do? And I said, all right, here's what you do. Turn your flashers on and stay in the car. She had the kids in the car with her. I was terrified. That's a busy intersection, right? There are cars whipping all around her, honking. I can hear the honking in the background as she's on the phone with me. She's, she's starting to cry. I'm starting to freak out. And so I did what any good husband would do. I jumped in my car, and I raced there as fast as I possibly could. I pull up. I jump up onto the median in my uh, SUV. I jump out. I run down the hill to get to Rebecca. The cops are already there. I looked at the cop and said, what do, what do we do? He said, we're going to stop this traffic. We're going to stop Manchester Expressway and Veterans Parkway, and you're going to push this car across the road. Right about then, a man walked up behind me, a, a taxi driver that saw what was going on, and he helped me push the car across the road. Got it towed to a, f- a friend of mine's shop here in town, and uh, the problem was not the spark plugs and the coil. It needed an entirely new computer. And no matter how many times I replaced those spark plugs and those coils, it was going to keep blowing every single time. Because I was fixing the symptom and not fixing the problem. And Paul is dealing with the problem in Galatians 1, verses 1, and 1 through 10. And then in chapter 1, verse number 11, he's going to start talking about his evidences for this gospel. If anyone comes to you and preaches to you, let him be accursed, ourselves included. Paul said, if my mind changes and I start preaching something different than Jesus Christ, you need to put me out in the desert and leave me to die. That's what the word accursed means. It means that you 
completely turn your back on it. Now, he says that, and then he says, and here are my evidences for the gospel. I'm not preaching this because I just made it up. I'm not preaching this because some other man made it up. I'm preaching this because I have two objective standards of evidence and one subjective standard of evidence that shows me that the gospel of Jesus Christ is the only thing that will save mankind. And so he says this, chapter, 11, uh, chapter 1, verse 11. For I would have you know, brothers... That the gospel that was preached by me is not man's gospel. For I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it. But I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. For you have heard of my former life in Judaism. How I persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy it. And I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people. So extremely zealous was I for the traditions of my fathers. But when he who had set me apart before I was born and who called me by his grace was pleased to reveal his son to me in order that I might preach among him the Gentile, among preach him among the Gentiles I did not immediately consult with anyone nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me but I went into Arabia and returned again to Damascus then after three years, I went up to Jerusalem to visit Cephas and remained with him, uh, other apostles except James, the Lord's brother. What I'm writing to you before God, I do not lie. Then I went into the regions of Syria and Cilicia. And I was still unknown in person to the churches of Judea that are in Christ. They only were hearing it said. He who used to persecute us is now preaching the faith he once tried to destroy. And they glorified God because of me. He's going to give two objective standards of evidence and one subjective piece of evidence that shows that the power of God in the gospel, Romans 1, 17, that it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Gentile. That the power of God in the gospel has the ability to change not only you, but the entire world. And he's essentially saying, the other things that these people are trying to get you to believe... These, these mind, this mindset that Christianity can't be that easy or it can't be that hard. There are two different types of false religions. False gospels. Number one is a religious false gospel that adds to the commandments of Jesus because Christianity can't be that easy. Number two is an irreligious false gospel that takes away from the gospel of Jesus because Christianity can't be that hard. In this case, they're preaching a religious false gospel. They're preaching that you must be circumcised and you must follow parts of, not the whole thing, but parts of the commands of Moses in order to go to heaven. But then on the same side, you're still going to have people that say, well, it doesn't matter what you do as long as you're a, a good person. It's not true. Paul says even if an angel from heaven comes and tells you that Jesus isn't enough or that Jesus is too much, die. And here are my evidences for it. Now, before we started our study this morning, we sang the song, Amazing Grace. I'm going to take the stanzas of Amazing Grace, some of the wording in Amazing Grace, for each of these, just so happens that they, they somewhat line up, to try to remind you, every time you sing Amazing Grace, I want you to remember of Galatians 1, 11. All right? Evidence number one. 
I once was lost, but now I'm found. Was blind, but now I see. Objective evidence number one. Paul says, I am it. I'm the objective standard. I'm the objective evidence. Numerous times in the Gospels, in in the Gospel, the New Testament, Paul says to imitate him. John says to imitate that which is good. Paul wants them to imitate him because he is an objective evidence. And 14, for you have heard of my former life in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy it. And I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people. So extremely zealous was I for the traditions of my father's. We don't know a lot about the beginning years of Paul's life. But given what we know about his late teens and early 20s, we can fill in a lot of the gaps. Paul is a man, Saul, by birth, is a man from the city of Tarsus in Cilicia, where he would later go. There, Verses 17 through 24, he says that he went to Syria and Cilicia. He went back home. But he's from Tarsus. He probably grew up in what we would call a middle class family. Um, They didn't have middle class per se in the first century. So uh, a a lower upper class family. Enough that he was well respected because of his name. About the age of 11, his family would have pooled some money and sent him to Jerusalem. Jerusalem. His father probably would have taken him to Jerusalem to to get him settled there and to choose a school. There were a number of different schools, like what we would call schools of preaching or seminaries in Jerusalem, that were built upon making rabbis. Old Testament teachers, preachers. And so he would have had to choose between the school of Shammai and Hillel and a couple others. But then eventually he came to rest on the decision that he was going to go to the school of Gamaliel, one of the best known teachers of his time. And that would set Paul on a trajectory, a career trajectory that was going to be unlike any other Jew that had ever lived. And so about the age of 13, he becomes a son of the law. He is bar mitzvahed, which means he can quote the entire Pentateuch, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, most of the Psalms. He was found to be intelligent enough and faithful enough under the law of Moses that he was then called a son of the law. Fast forward about five years And Paul is, Saul still, is sitting at the feet of Gamaliel. He has had the best Bible education that anyone could ever ask for. Gamaliel, an amazing, amazing teacher of the law. A a person who sat on the Sanhedrin. And so Paul would have been going with Gamaliel and seeing the Sanhedrin And he is on the trajectory to become not just part of the Sanhedrin, but he may become big in the Sanhedrin. Scholars estimate that if Paul lived today, he would have multiple doctorate degrees. This man is a genius. This man is well-educated. This man is then confronted with this new religion started by a man named Yeshua of Nazareth. And Yeshua, Jesus, was preaching something that the Sanhedrin could not allow. And they needed someone to take care of this problem for them. And so Paul, at the ripe old age of 18 or 19, becomes the Sanhedrin's 
hatchet man. Remember that term here in just a minute. Paul becomes the person that the Sanhedrin tasks with finding these new Christians and dealing with them. And so, fast forward a few more years. Now it has come to the point where Jesus has died and Christianity is not dying with him. We need to ramp up our extermination of this false religion in their eyes. And so about the age of 21 to 22, Paul starts doubling down on his newfound profession. And he starts killing Christians. One day on the road to Damascus, bright light shines. Paul can't see anything. The people around him hear a voice, but they can't tell what the voice says. Paul can tell what it says. He says, Paul, why are you persecuting me? It's hard for you to kick against the pricks, which means, Paul, you're one of the most educated men alive today, especially when it comes to the law. You know that the law teaches you that the Messiah is coming. And you have been fighting yourself to admit that that Messiah is already here and has already gone. And the people that you've been persecuting, the people that you've been arresting, you've also been fighting this inward turmoil because deep, deep down, Paul, you know that that they're right and you're wrong. What do you want me to do, Lord? I want you to go into Damascus. Wait, I'll send someone to take care of you. Three days later, Ananias gets there and he says, Paul, what are you doing? Get up. Be baptized. Wash away your sins. Call on the name of the Lord. Be saved from this horrible past. This murderous past. This blasphemous past. If anyone ever tells you that blasphemy of the Holy Spirit is the unforgivable sin and that blasphemy of the Holy Spirit means that you denied that Jesus was the Christ, I want you to look at them square in the face and say, Paul, and then walk away. Evidence number one was that Paul was blind not because he didn't have the ability to know the gospel. He was fighting it. And Paul says, if you want evidence that the gospel is real, look at me. You know who I was before this. You were terrified of me. If Jesus can save me, He can save you. If Jesus can save me, He doesn't need your help to come up with additions to the gospel. Evidence number two. It was grace that taught my heart to fear. Grace teaches us something. The grace of God set down 2,000 years ago a book. A book that would lead you and I to know how to obey that gospel that Paul is talking about. A book that would allow us something that the Galatians didn't have. Paul says, if we or an angel from heaven come and preach to you any other gospel than that which you have heard from us, let him be accursed. I don't remember. Did Paul talk about circumcision? I mean, he was a Jew, and so 
He probably talked about circumcision, right? Sounds right. Okay, we'll, ha- we'll be circumcised in order to follow Jesus. You and I have something that they didn't have. We have a book. But nonetheless, have you ever noticed that people don't really understand how Christianity came to be? It doesn't make sense to people. How did all of these people across the known world start a religion and write a book that's completely harmonious, that contains absolutely no errors and no contradictions. And if they were lying, maybe they could come up with that. If they were lying, why did they die for it? You remember that I told you that to remember that Paul was the Sanhedrin's hatchet man? Let's take just a second and talk about another hatchet man. This is a picture of Chuck Colson. By the way, I, I felt kind of weird getting a picture of a man smoking a cigar and using it in my sermon. But I can't find a good picture of Chuck Colson where he doesn't have a cigar. So it seems to be a pretty good picture of his character at the time that this picture was taken. Which is the exact moment that we need to talk about. Chuck Colson was Nixon's hatchet man. If you grew up during Nixon's uh, presidency and the Watergate scandal, you know all about this man. He came a few years after I came, or before I came rather. And so I, I, I didn't grow up during Watergate. I heard about it once in school and that was about it. Chuck Colson was Nixon's hatchet man. He was the man that was tasked. He was a former Marine. He was tasked by Nixon he, to do the dirty work that Nixon didn't want to do. And eventually, that dirty work came to be known as the Watergate scandal. And when news broke of the recordings and the burglaries and so forth, um, Nixon had a big problem on his hands. Well, so did Chuck Colson. Because Chuck Colson came up with the problem. He He was the mastermind. And so... As soon as news broke, Chuck Colson tells the story, uh, told the story, he has passed on now, but he told the story of how he and the five or six other men who helped him perpetrate Watergate um, got in a room and came up with a lie so that they wouldn't go to prison. Now keep in mind that Chuck Colson is an ex-Marine a couple of the other guys that were in that group were ex-Marines. But then you had FBI agents. You had CIA operatives who lie for a living. Right? These men are not normal men. These men are good at their jobs. These men are some of the best at their jobs. And these men are trained to not break. You want to know how long it took them after interrogations or during interrogations to break? Less than a week. This is what Colson said about that. That's with Marines, FBI, and CIA agents. And you're going to try to convince me that a bunch of untrained fishermen and and blue-collar workers maintained their story unbroken to the end As each was tortured and executed, there is absolutely no way. Not only that, people don't die for a lie. But not only do people not die for a lie, something in Galatians 1 is very interesting. Look at verse 17. Nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me, but I went into Arabia, returned again to Damascus, spent three years there. Then after three years, I went up to Jerusalem to visit Cephas and remained with him 15 days. But I saw none of the other apostles except James, the Lord's brother. What I'm writing to you before God, I do not lie. Then I went into the regions of Syria and Cilicia. I was still unknown in person to the churches of Judea. 
They were only hearing it said, he who used to persecute us is now preaching the faith he once tried to destroy. And they glorified God because of me. The time that elapsed between the conversion of Saul of Tarsus and Acts chapter 15, which we'll talk about in a few weeks, 17 years of isolation, relative isolation. Paul could have become one of those Christians that you never hear about. At the end of the book of Acts, it's estimated that there are over a million, maybe two million Christians in the world. You don't know, but the names of maybe 50 or 60 of them. Why? Because they were faithful Christians living out the gospel in their community churches. And they never made it big, quote unquote. But Paul had another mission, a mission that was given by God. And so in 17 years of preparing for that mission, Paul had been with another apostle for 15 days. That's it, 15 days. In 17 years, 17 years, he had met with another apostle for 15 days. And when you see him in Acts chapter 15, and you read about him in Galatians chapter 2, which we'll hit when I get back from PTP. Over those 17 years, that grace that was teaching him and teaching Peter or Cephas, I wonder if Paul knew Cephas before all this Christianity stuff. Why is Paul one of the only people in the New Testament after Jesus changes his name to call him Cephas? Maybe they knew each other beforehand. 17 years. Peter is learning the gospel through the grace of God. Paul is learning the gospel through the grace of God. The other apostles, Jerusalem and James, the brother of Jesus, are all learning the gospel through the grace of God and through the miraculous inspiration of the Holy Spirit. 17 years in relative isolation. They come together in Acts 15 and their gospels line up. Why? Because the gospel changes men. Men don't change the gospel. In fact, in those 17 years, Paul had advanced in the gospel so much that in 2 Peter 3 and verse 16, when Peter is writing about the writings that Paul writes to churches, he says this, some of the things in them are hard to understand. Some of the things that Paul writes about, I don't even understand, essentially what Peter is saying, which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction as they do the other scriptures. Keep in mind that Peter just called the writings of Paul scripture. Peter says, I walked with Jesus Christ for three years. I was his best friend. I was there when he was murdered. I was there when the New Testament church was established. I'm the one that on the day of Pentecost, when people said we were drunk, I'm the one that stood up and preached the gospel. When you look at the beginning of the church, I'm the one that started it. I'm the one that that preached the first sermon. But Paul is so intelligent in the gospel that even when he writes, Romans chapter 9, predesta what? What are you talking about? When Paul writes, it's hard for me to understand. Why? Because God calls every person through the gospel alike. And the gospel doesn't change. The gospel changes men. And each person has the ability to hold more information than other people. That's the beauty of the church. You and I were created in the image of God and we have differences that allow us to work together for the glory of God. 
But whether you have multiple doctorate degrees or whether you shape a living, you follow the same gospel. Some of us may be able to dig deeper into that gospel than others, but it's still the same gospel. Evidence number one, if you want to know that the gospel is real, look at Paul. Evidence number two, if you want to know that the gospel is real, look at the fact that this gospel did not come through men who lied and then took it back later. They died for this book. They died so that you could be sitting in that pew this morning. They died so that you could have a Bible in your hand and know how to follow it. And if you want to know the gospel is real, you look at the fact that you don't have to have intelligent people tell you how to follow Jesus. You can look at it for yourself and know. Now, let's move on to the subjective evidence that Paul uses for the gospel. Verses 15 and 16. But when he who had set me apart before I was born and who called me by his grace was pleased to reveal his son to me in order that I might preach him among the Gentiles, I did not immediately consult with anyone. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found, was blind, but now I see. Paul was blind. "'Twas grace that taught my heart to fear, and it teaches your heart to fear, alike, regardless of your status and your knowledge and your intelligence. We all have the same grace, and we all have the same gospel. And number three, "'Twas grace that brought us safe thus far.'" The difference between an objective evidence and a subjective evidence is an objective evidence is verifiable. If you want to know the gospel's real, look at the change in Paul's life. He became an objective evidence for us. You want to know the gospel's real? Look at the fact that there's no contradictions. Look at the fact that we all have the same gospel. A subjective evidence is a little bit different, however. A subjective evidence talks about the the effect that it had on you. The religious world calls it a testimony. I don't care what you call it. Call it a testimony. Call it your story. I don't care what you call it. Every single one of you has one. And Paul used his as a subjective evidence of the gospel. When he who had set me apart before I was born and called me by his grace was pleased to reveal his son to me in order that I might preach him among the Gentiles, I did not consult with anyone. I became closer to God in my isolation. I needed to get away and spend 17 years with my Lord. Every single person has this subjective evidence of the gospel. If you have become a Christian. None of ours looks exactly the same. Mine started with a kid down the street who got a trumpet. Invited me down to his house so that I could see his new trumpet. Let me hold it. Taught me how to make a sound on it. A year and a half later, when I got to the grade where it was time to start band, I already knew how to play. And so when Mr. Smith brought us into the band room on the day when you pick your instrument, and he tries you out at every instrument, I I could figure out how to do a standard, you know, rhythm on a drum. I, I, I I could kind of make a sound on a saxophone. But he handed me the trumpet, and I already knew how to play it, and it was done. I was a trumpet player. And I played for 10 years in junior high and high school and college. And at the end of high school, 
there was only one college that I was going to go to. I'm one of those students growing up where I did more work to know what grade I had to get on a test in order to get the grade for the final that I needed, that I would do that. If I needed a 72 on that math test and there were 100 questions, I'd answer 72 questions correct and turn it in. And when it came time for high school to end, I knew I needed a 21 on my ACT. So I figured out what I needed to do to get a 21 on my ACT. I walked in, I scored a 21 on my ACT, and I sent my application to Jacksonville State University. And I showed up in 2008, August, July 2008. And the first person I met was a man named Dalton. And I want you to know that the career path that I was on during that whole time was not one like I have today. You see, I'm, I was very surprised when I hit 25 years old because I didn't think I was going to make it that far. People that were doing the things that I was doing in high school and the beginning of college don't make it that far. They are wrapped around a telephone pole long before that. But the first person I met was Dalton. And he said, hey, we have a Bible study tonight. We won't be able to make it to church Bible study, but we we have a Bible study in the basement of the music department at Jacksonville. Would you like to come with me? And I said, no, man, that's not my scene. And about eight months later, after continuing down that path of rebellious lifestyle and waking up one Saturday morning in my apartment not knowing how I got there because the last thing I remembered was that I was pulling into the party Friday night. I told Dalton the next week, I'll come to Bible study with you. And then the gospel took effect. And Jesus Christ converted me. It's interesting that when you read this passage, everything that Paul talks about is things that Jesus was doing to him. Now, does that negate the the importance of the obedience of faith, Romans 16, 25 and 26? Absolutely not. But the fact of the matter is, is that Paul understood that everything that had happened to him was God's doing. That the gospel is so Christocentric. It is so circled around that you do passive in nature. Because Jesus has already done the work to get you there and to teach you that. And he told you what to do and you just do it because I'm all yours, Lord. There was a grandfather one time sitting on the porch with his grandson and it's late evening on a Sunday afternoon. And they're just sitting there rocking like you might do with your grandfather. I remember times when I would sit on my grandpa's porch and just rock with him. And he'd tell me funny stories about growing up in Gadsden. My other grandfather would tell me stories about growing up in Horton, Alabama. And uh, all of a sudden, grandpa's, this, this, this grandpa on the porch with his grandson... Grandpa's dog jumps up, lets out a single yelp, and takes off running into the woods. And after that, his nine other hunting dogs start going crazy, jumping, barking, everything, and they run after it. Run after the the one dog that took off. And the grandpa looks at his grandson and says, here's what's going to happen. In about 10 minutes, those nine dogs are going to come back. They're going to be panting. They're going to be exhausted. They're going to go back up under this porch, and they're going to go to sleep. About 30 minutes after that, that first dog is going to come back. He won't be tired at all, and he'll have the rabbit in his mouth. And the young grandson says, how do you know that, Grandpa? And the grandpa says, because that first dog... Is the only one that saw the rabbit. And there's nothing that'll stop him now. 
the Judaizing teachers in Galatia were the ten dogs, the nine dogs that were yapping and running. But Paul was the one who actually saw Jesus. He saw the rabbit and there was no stopping him. And Paul says, I have this subjective evidence of the gospel. My testimony, if you want to call it that. And that is how through my entire life, Paul was pursue, God was pursuing me. I can see now that in those 17 years, God became more real to me than he ever was sitting at the feet of Gamaliel. I can see now that God was the one that took away my hate and my fear. Every single one of you has a subjective evidence of the gospel. You can call it your testimony, call it your story. I don't care what you call it. But people need to know that. Because the fact is, there are objective evidences of the truth. There is no denying that this book has no contradictions in it. If you find one, show it to me. I will become your slave for my entire life. But also, it is very real that a lot of Christians are running the race of life and the race of faith like the nine dogs because they've never actually seen Jesus. And when you see Him, uh, you can't see Him physically. I know that. But when it clicks, there'll be no stopping you. The gospel's real. You can look at the objective standards. Jesus saved Paul. Jesus and the grace of God taught our hearts to respect and fear the Almighty in a gospel that is unchanging, in a gospel that is harmonious across 17 years of isolation, a gospel that is harmonious across 66 books of the Old Testament and the New Testament. And the gospel is real because you can look and see New Testament Christians living today who have seen Jesus and there is no stopping them. I'll remind you very quickly the story of Freddie. One of my good friends, Brandon Edwards, we watched the, the story a few weeks ago on Sunday afternoon. Freddie was a, a human trafficker. Brandon converted him. And then one day, Freddie calls Brandon and says, I know what I need to do. He, he'd been dealing with this, how do I use my talents and my abilities for the furtherance of the gospel? And he calls Brandon and says, I know what I need to do. Did you know that there are Christians in North Korea? Brandon says, yes. And he says, I'm going to go get them. I'm a human trafficker. This is what I do. I move people across the world with no trace that they were ever there. I'm going to get them out. And Brandon said, Freddie, you know that they will kill you. And Freddie's answer proves that Freddie, Freddie was the dog who saw the rabbit. Brandon, I just want to live. I've been dead this entire time. And I just want to live. Listen, y'all. Don't be scared to use your story to show people the power of the gospel. I know that it's subjective, but that's okay. As long as the gospel that you're showing them because of your story is the same gospel that is objectively true the same one that Paul preached 
Because if you or anyone else preaches another gospel than that which Paul preached to the Galatians and what Peter preached to the people at Pentecost and what James preached and what Timothy preached and what Titus preached and what Luke preached and what all the other apostles preached, if you teach them a gospel that's different than that gospel, you'll be accursed and so will they. But, when you show them the power of the gospel in your life and the life of Paul and the objective truths of the gospel, they will see Jesus Christ and there will be nothing stopping them. It's beautiful. If you want to become a Christian this morning, let me tell you this. If you're doing it to join a country club, if you're doing it because that's what everybody else does, if you're doing it because that's what mom and daddy want you to do, if you're, if, if you're doing it because of any other reason, there's no use. You're just the nine dogs. You're going to run for a minute. You're going to get exhausted. You're going to go back up onto the porch, and you're going to fall asleep. You're going to lose your soul. But if the gospel is real to you, and if you've seen the rabbit then you need to become a Christian. I know I'm over. I repent in sackcloth and ashes. Next week I'll wear a potato sack to church. But I won't be here next week, so you won't know about it. <laughs> Anyways. If you want to become a Christian and you've seen the gospel, you've seen Jesus Christ through the truth of the gospel, you've seen Jesus Christ through the objective truths that Paul has mentioned or the subject of truth that Paul's mentioned. Or you've seen it through the lives of other Christians. And you're ready to become one of those Christians. It's time for you to become a Christian. It's time for you to go all in. And start following your creator. And if you're willing to be baptized for the remission of your sins. Not because you're doing something. But because Jesus has already done everything for you. And now you're just turning your life over to him and saying, whatever you want, you have done it. I am here. You have brought me to you. You have taught me the truth. And now I'm yours. If you're ready to be baptized for that reason, then you can let us know as we stand and sing.